Hi again, everybody. I'm Josh Warden. This is the Beaver Tales podcast, where I talk with former Oregon State athletes for a where are they now conversation. Do you know how hard it is to be an All-American? I mean, it's hard to make a D1 team in the first place, let alone being one of the better athletes on that team, let alone an all-Pac-12 selection, making the first team all-conference or whatever it may be, let alone making the All-American team. And there have only been nine All-Americans in school history for the Oregon State swimming program, which is in fact no longer. It was dropped last year, but today I'm talking with a former Oregon State swimmer, the ninth and final All-American in Oregon State history for swimming. That's Sammy Harrison, who swam for OSU from 2012 to 2016. She holds three school records to this day, which may just last forever. In fact, she also became the first Pac-12 champion in school history. And uh, I asked Sammy, I don't think there's been any others in the few years after you were gone, and I I don't think there were. So I think she's the only Pac-12 champion in school history winning the conference title in the 1650 in freestyle. She was a distance freestyler. She also holds the school record in the 500 freestyle by nearly seven seconds. That's a big margin. In the 1,000 freestyle, she holds the school record by a margin of 21 seconds over the next closest swimmer in school history. And in the 1650, the freestyle, where the school record had stood for more than a decade, she now holds the record by 33 seconds at uh, her final time of 15 minutes, 54 seconds. That is a giant margin. Now, normally we might just talk about, you know, what does it mean to you to break a school record? And, and that's a good question. But I was curious about what happens with the person who had the record before you, speaking as someone, myself, who has never broken a school record. I don't know if the person who record you broke might reach out and say congratulations. And she actually shared a fun story about the previous record holder for at least one of those events, Naya Higashijima who was more than a decade removed from her own OSU career, was actually there at the meet when Sammy won her Pac-12 championship. So Naya, who was coaching a different school, got to congratulate her as well as Oregon State's only national champion in program history, that Saudi Haruguchi, or she just goes by Sari, also reached out to Sammy as well. So that was fun. Now, Sammy is not a native Oregonian, but she became a lifelong beaver. And for proof, I asked her what her cat's name was before we were recording. And I, I could see her cat in the background. You might even hear the cat a few times uh, throughout the interview just a little bit well she's got kind of orange fur and the cat's name is Benny so that that just shows you how big of a beaver believer and lifelong Oregon State student athlete and uh, alum that Sammy Harrison is now we talked about how big swimming played a role in her identity as a person in college and transitioning away from that and then we kind of closed the conversation with life in Germany she lives overseas with her husband and we talked about what she does day to day and I knew that would be one of the last topics we covered but it ended up only being about halfway through the conversation because it sparked a few other uh, things to talk about coaching swimming which she's gotten into traveling around Europe protests going on there in Germany so we did what I like to do with a lot of these conversations with former student athletes is we talk about sports and we use that as a backdrop but also just as a method to talk about bigger things larger life lessons and more meaningful discussions as well. Last thing, the nonprofit I'm publicizing for this episode is the Bail Project, which helps people who are awaiting a trial and are allowed to go free before their trial as long as they post bail, but they can't afford it. So they have to be incarcerated without even being convicted of a crime simply because of their socioeconomic status. So the Bail Fund helps people in that situation. More info and a a link to their website in the description. 
I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sammy Harrison, one of the best swimmers in Oregon State program history, right here in the Beaver Tales podcast. We'll go through all your your OSU highlights and the records and stuff, but tell me first, you are in an entirely different continent than Northern America. So how did you come to reside in Germany? Um, so my husband got a job here. Um, we met at OSU and we got engaged last February. Um, and then shortly after that, he got a job offer here in Germany um, as an engineer working for the Army. So we're on the Army base here. So we quickly got married. Um, we haven't even had our real wedding yet. But yeah, we got to come over here and we live near the Army base in Stuttgart. And um, it's pretty incredible to be living in Europe. We've traveled to, I think, nine countries now. And we've only been here for like 14 or 15 months. So just absolutely life-changing, and we're, we're so grateful for our time here, and especially to have this time together um, before we have kids eventually. Everyone always says, you know, it's so nice that you're here when you're so young, because um, the population is definitely uh, a little bit older here. And yeah, that's how we ended up here. Um, and now we're just trying to enjoy our time and waiting for the borders to open back up again so we can go explore Europe and anywhere else that we can, because it's... It's so beautiful over here. So when is your legal anniversary? And whenever you have your real wedding, will you, will you still remember the anniversary of when you technically got married or whenever your wedding is that feels more like the real day? Yeah, that is a good question. It was supposed to be that our, our real anniversary was the day we had our wedding in front of all of our friends and family, which was supposed to be this summer. Um, but because of coronavirus, that's now been postponed an entire another year. So by the time we have the wedding, we'll already have been married for like two and a half years. So it kind of feels wrong to not honor that first one. Um, so we haven't really decided yet. We're kind of going back and forth and talking about it now that it looks so different than what we had originally planned. I honestly don't even know what the actual date was that we technically signed the papers because it all happened so quickly. We're still trying to, to figure that out. <laughs> Gotcha. So it was February 20, 2019 that you technically got married. Is that right? Yeah, I think like February 18th, 2019. Okay. Gotcha. Sounds we tried good. to get married on Valentine's Day, but none of the people were available, none of the ordained ministers. So, How did you meet your now husband initially? Was that at Oregon State? Yeah, we met at Oregon State. I was a junior and he was just finishing up his senior year. And so we dated for a few months, knowing that he was going to be graduating. So it was kind of casual. And then when he left, we just both realized like we were completely devastated and we wanted to stay together. So we did the super long distance from Portland to Corvallis. And yeah, we just fell in love from there. And like we just had so much in common and love spending time with each other. And we moved in after I graduated the next year together in Portland. And yeah, we're just best pals and love spending time together. So I'm really glad that it worked out because the life that we have built for ourselves, especially now being here in Germany together is something I never dreamed that I would have with the person that I'm going to be spending the rest of my life with. So it's, it's wonderful. 
right? We'll kind of come full circle, run through your Oregon State memories, and then kind of come back to what life in Germany is like now and what you personally are up to and, and all that sort of stuff. But let's come back to kind of when you're first coming to Oregon State and you're a Nevada native and you've got a handful of school records. I mean, the, the ones you have in you know, 500 freestyle, 1,000 freestyle, the 1650, and a lot of those by pretty wide margins at that. So when you were coming to Oregon State, did you already have an idea that your name would end up, you know, a fair amount of times across the record books, even, even by your freshman year? Um, no, not at all. Um, I was excited to be going to a Pac-12 school, um, but definitely was intimidated by that fact um, because the Pac-12 is always one of the two strongest conferences in the nation for swimming. Um, so I definitely didn't go into it expecting to be like some big superstar in the swimming world at all. Um, and comparing like my freshman year and how I performed in high school to how I did sophomore through senior year, I had a very weird transition and like a peaking that was different than normal athletes, um, especially as a female. Um, I, I would say it's normal for males to peak at maybe 19 or 20 in sports, but females definitely way younger. A lot of females um, peak even when they're in high school. And so I went in my freshman year and swam kind of how we all expected me to. Um, and then my sophomore year at Pac-12s, uh, I randomly dropped, I think it was like over 20 seconds or almost 20 seconds in the 1650. And my coach was just like, okay, I'll take it. That was great. Let's keep doing it. And so, yeah, it was really, really shocking to me how much faster I got, even though I was already almost 20 years old, um, but really fun. And then after that, I realized how much potential that I had and worked my butt off from there. And it definitely changed uh, a lot of my perspective on like what I could accomplish in the sport if I really remained completely committed to it. So, yeah, I mean, it, when I think of peaking, oftentimes, like maybe in football and basketball, usually it's considered like late 20s, but in swimming, for sure, it, it tends to be swimming and gymnastics are really one of the, the earliest peaks where by the time you're even 22, 23, you're, if you're not in your prime, you're past it at that point, it seems. I mean, there are exceptions to that for sure. But when you use words like randomly, like it, it felt kind of a surprise. So when you look back on it, can you put your finger on why that was? Or did it just seem completely unknown? Um, I would say, I mean, I'm sure my coach could give you uh, a few exact precise reasons and how uh, my head coach and my assistant coach changed my training plan after my freshman year didn't go as well as we wanted. Um, but I think it was in swimming terms, it was changing my stroke rate. Um, so I went from having like a very high turnover and they lengthened out my stroke. So I wasn't taking as many strokes per length. Um, and I think that made a huge difference. Um, and it was just trial and error during my freshman year, figuring out what kind of sets that I needed in order to succeed. So my freshman year, we kind of figured out like, okay, none of this is working for me. What can we do differently? And so we spent the first half of the year just trying new things and seeing what worked. And then by the end of the year, we had just figured it out. And um, I think my tapering went really well as well going into um, the Pac-12 and NC2A championships. 
and all of that coming together is what allowed me to do so well at the Pac-12 in that year. When I think of a lot of the Olympic swimmers that I grew up watching, especially the female swimmers, I can't, I can't list off, you know, what age they finished at, but I want to say the swimmers like Natalie Coughlin or Amanda Beard, or even if I remember Dana Torres's career, I think she was known for, gosh, I mean, didn't she go like into her, well into her thirties, I want to say it's still in the Olympics. Do you recall her yeah. getting inspiration from, from women like her? Yeah, I think Dana Torres, her final Olympics or at least Olympic trials. I can't remember if she made it to the Olympics in 2016, but I know she went to the trials for the 50 free. And I think she was maybe 40 and had already had at least two children. So that's wow. absolutely incredible um, that she was able to train through that, especially as a sprinter. That's crazy. I think it's a little bit easier uh, to do that if you're a long distance. Um, I have a friend that I grew up swimming with who is nearing 30 and he still has Olympic dreams, um, for next year. So, um, I didn't really see it though. When I was in college, you can definitely start to feel it as you enter your junior and senior year. You're like, wow, I'm getting older. This is definitely getting harder. Um, and I had grown up looking up to those women, um, and the stars of the sport, but I never really saw it as like, I looked up to them because they were older and they were succeeding. It was just, you know, they were good and they happened to be older than what was common for Olympians. And I think especially nowadays, it seems like it's absolutely trending younger. Like we have a very, very young Olympic and national team every year. It's kind of crazy to watch. Yeah. So if anything, since you only graduated from OSU about four years ago and you're in your mid twenties, we'll probably see you in the Olympics 10 years from now, if you peak like Dana Torres. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. I, <laughs> I don't, I don't go in the water more than like once a month now. So <laughs> wow. that kind of was what I was going to come back to is for how big swimming became in your life. And for any D1 athlete, I mean, you're in the pool putting a lot of mileage in week after week, especially in season, but I'm sure out of season, you're staying on a, a certain training regimen. So for how big it got, at least time wise, and how, how much of your hours are put in, but but even more so maybe your identity, like what you look to as what makes you valuable, or what you talk about with your friends, what you're daydreaming about all the time. If you've transitioned away to a certain degree where you're not competitively swimming, you might jump in the pool occasionally, but not super often. How did that transition go in terms of making swimming less important to a certain degree and, and what may have like filled what swimming used to be for you? Yeah, it was, it was weird and difficult for a while. I mean, obviously, swimming was my whole world. Um, and it was absolutely my entire identity. Um, in my mind, when I was graduating college, that was basically the only thing I had accomplished was my swimming stats. And so I'm going to apply for jobs and uh, moving to a new city and feeling completely unqualified compared to all of these students that I saw myself applying for the same jobs as, and I felt like they had spent all this time in undergrad working or doing this and that to make themselves better prepared for the real world. And so I felt completely ill-equipped to do anything. And I applied to so many jobs and got rejected from so many because of my lack of experience. And so just that combination of things really made me feel like I had made choices and choosing to 
put all of my eggs in one basket and just do swimming and focus so hard on it. But then I learned after playing with my resume for a while and talking to a bunch of the people that are great resources in the athletic department, realizing that all of these things that I learned in the pool and especially as a leader and a captain um, and being president of SAC, learning that those skills translate into the real world and I just needed to learn how to put them on my resume just to get me in for an interview and then once we interview they'll realize I'm not just an airheaded athlete or a jock I actually have good qualities that I can bring to the table to do well in the working world Um, and then to fill the void of swimming and athletics um, I'm still super competitive Um, My husband will tell you that any day. I'm trying to make everything a competition. Um, But I just kind of like to mix it up, and I do a bunch of different sports. We've kind of done climbing and running and uh, cycling, and then I swim a little bit here, um, and I do yoga. So that kind of fills that void. But I would say the biggest void after leaving swimming was realizing, like, okay, you're not going to be the center of attention anymore. Like, nobody cares that you were a super impressive athlete in college. Like people care about, are you a good person? Like, do you work hard and those kind of things. Um, and I definitely miss my teammates and I wish that we could all live together and go on travel trips together all the time. But it's just, that's just what makes it looking back so special. Sure. I'm sure that, you know, the world is oftentimes a, what have you done lately? What have you done for me lately sort of situation where if you're not still the athlete, oftentimes you get forgotten pretty quickly. But if anything heightens that situation, it's maybe moving overseas and not being around the people who would even understand Oregon State swimming. Uh, for example, like when I talked with Jamie Wisner a few weeks ago and I asked her, do people in Russia where you're playing basketball understand how big the final four is to go to Oregon State to the NCAA tournament? And she was like, no, nobody cares about college basketball in America when they're from Russia. Yeah. So if you had to like, to, to whatever accomplishments you have can very quickly become less important to those around you, especially when you go to a place where there is just not a big deal to them. And, and why, why would Russians care about college basketball after all? So I'm sure when you got to Germany, if it wasn't already going to be that transition, then you quickly had to realize, man, nobody, nobody knows the Beavers over here. Nobody cares about student athletes from Corvallis, right? Yeah. Yeah, I have seen people wear beaver t-shirts um, wow. and we ran up to them all excitedly and talked to them. We'll try to talk to them about OSU and they don't speak English. And I think they just got it at like a hand-me-down store or something. So I don't, <laughs> I don't think they know about Oregon State at all. Have you seen more Oregon State t-shirts or U of O t-shirts? Um, U of O for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But here they wear more uh, like professional sports teams stuff there's not a lot of college teams and i think that's largely because they don't have sports in college in germany and i i don't know how common it is for germans to go to the states and play sports i mean obviously they do but they just their their education system is so different so i just don't think that it's a priority for them to be looking at college sports it's you're either pro or you do it casually well unfortunately i do 
tend to think U of O shirts and the brand travels more, but if you're representing Oregon State in Germany, that's a start and we'll, we'll get that flipped around eventually. So we'll, yeah. we'll work on that. And um, there's other beavers on base yeah. with all the other Americans. Like we've met a few, but we have also unfortunately met a few ducks. So you just have to <laughs> take what you can get. When you finished up in 2016, it was only really three years after that where the swimming program folded basically it was done in 2019 and so for you to still be a pretty recent student athlete and to hear that the program was closing they're, they're ending the whole thing and all the swimmers had to find new schools or just stayed at Oregon State and didn't couldn't swim anymore what was that experience like to hear your own program the, the one you'd swam for for four years was no longer it was super devastating to find out when we got the announcement we all just saw it on the Beavers page the same as everyone else did. You know, we didn't know ahead of time or anything. And I don't know that the current swimmers, I think they might've found out maybe a day before, but they also weren't given a huge heads up. But yeah, we were all texting each other after it happened, pretty shocked because it really seemed like the team was going in a really good direction with the new coach that they got. Um, and hearing from the current swimmers, they all really loved her. And it seemed like the, the dynamic on the team was changing in a good way. So it was very surprising um, and just to feel like, yeah, you have nothing to go back to now. And like when we have everything that we looked forward to every year was the alumni meets where we would go and we'd all put our suits on again for the first time in a year and race the kids on the team. And it was so much fun and definitely something we all looked forward to. And so to just not have that anymore is crazy and hard to think about. Um, so I'm thankful that a lot of them were able to find new places to finish out their swimming careers um, because I know that if that would have happened to me when I was still swimming, I would have just been outraged and felt like I got cheated out of something that I signed up for. So I really feel for, for the girls that were there during that time. Um, and I just hope that someday when we are back in the States and we are going back to the alumni football games, um, that we can still connect with the other girls the way that we would have if we had had a, an alumni meet in a way to hang out the day before the alumni game. Yeah. Your school records probably would have held for a long time. I mean, you're one in the 1650. Nobody is within 33 seconds of, of that one. You're, you're at 15 minutes, 54 seconds. Now it seems that they're permanent that you're going to have those school records forever uh that is what, one positive yes <laughs> how long <laughs> you're not do you going think, anywhere yeah how long do you think they would have lasted had the program stayed um i that's a good question i don't really know uh, i think it would just depend on recruiting and um i know that after i left the Focus didn't seem to be on long distance, when, whereas when I was there, it seemed like every year we had a pretty solid group of four, if not five girls that were mid-distance to long distance. And then after I left, it seemed like they went more to sprinting and IM people. Um, so it would have just been uh, being able to recruit people in that specialized in long distance. Um, but I mean, anything is possible. And every year the younger people are getting faster and faster. So it definitely could have happened that my records could have been gone sooner than I would have ever hoped for. When you broke those, did you hear from anybody 
um, whether it be previous record holders, because at least the 1650, I think it held for about a decade or so. I think that was Naya Higashijima or, or anyone else who was in the top 10. Did you, did anyone reach out and maybe the, either one of the persons in any of those events who had held the record, did you hear any of that or was, was there any fanfare? I don't know whose record I broke in the 500, um, but Naya was actually the assistant coach at UCLA when I was swimming. And so she was there in 2014 when I won the Pac-12 championship in the 1650. And that was my, I think that was my best time. Um, and so she was so excited for me. And I think the first thing she said to me was it was about time that the record got broken. Um, yeah, absolutely a wonderful supporter. And she was so, so sweet after that happened. We got to know each other a little bit more throughout the years because OSU and UCLA had such a close relationship because Larry, our head coach, was really close with Naya, obviously, and then also the head coach. So that was one person that got to actually witness me breaking her record, funnily enough. And then also um, an old swimmer who went to NC2As and actually won a national championship. She was the only Oregon State swimmer to ever win a national championship. She reached out to me on Facebook and congratulated me on being a Pac-12 champion and having uh, the new records. So that was really cool to hear from her because she's absolutely an OSU legend. Mm. Was that Saudi or who, who was the Ushari Haraguchi or who I'm forgetting. Which yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. There's some big time OSU swimmers in, in the ranks and um, you were one of, I think only nine all Americans ever in the program that'll stay. And you were, you were one of them and sorry was one of them. And so a lot of, a lot of really good swimmers, let's kind of wrap it up with coming back to what you're doing in Germany since you've been there uh, about a year now, right? Cause it was shortly after you got married in February of, of last year. So roughly a year. And it seemed like the reason you went over was more because your husband's job. So maybe initially, I don't know if you had a plan for, well, what am I going to do? But how did you figure that, that out? And how have you been spending your time? Yeah, um, we kind of went into it super blindly and had no idea what my job opportunities would be. Um, I worked in physical therapy back in the States. And they obviously have PT here because uh, soldiers get injured all the time. So I was really hoping that I could continue to do that, but it turns out it's really, really difficult to get a job here, um, especially in the medical field. So um, I'm actually just going to start in the next week or so to volunteer at the PT clinic, which I'm so, so excited for um, to be able to work with those people. Um, but other than that, I am actually a coach on the swim team. So I coach the Stuttgart Piranhas and they are wonderful. I coach mostly middle, middle schoolers and high schoolers, but we have ages six through 19 on the team, and they're awesome. They work so hard, and they are just super passionate about swimming, and it's so cute to see how excited they are, and I try to be real with them and tell them that it is very difficult, especially as you get older, um, but it's my favorite sport still, and it's just really fun to be around them and have their enthusiasm for the sport. Um, and we get to travel. We're in the um, European Forces Swim League, so we compete against all of the other Army and Air Force and other military bases here in Europe. And so we get to travel to Italy and the Netherlands and sometimes Slovenia and the UK in order to compete in swim meets just on the weekend. So it's, it's not a bad gig. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So these are mostly kids on the team on the Army base, other American kids who you're 
coaching? Yeah, it's American kids um, that are affiliated with the base somehow, whether their parents are actually in the military or contractors or civilians like we are. Um, but they're, they're all Americans. Gotcha. If any of them showing a lot of promise, are you, I mean, I wish you could edge them towards, hey, you got to go to Oregon State. Unfortunately, that's not a possibility anymore. But yeah, um, I would. Yeah. What's, uh, how has been able to be a coach? It didn't sound like that was kind of a a dream of yours when you were a swimmer, but to to become that, what has that been like to, to try to transition from an athlete to then coaching these other younger uh, athletes into to being swimmers themselves? Yeah, it's been super uh, surprising. I wasn't sure about it at first. I just signed up because I knew I was qualified um, and they were excited to have me. So I kind of just went into the first year saying like, I'll see how it goes. Um, and it's a little bit different than the experience that I grew up with because I grew up swimming on a club team. So from the time I was probably 10 or 11, I was swimming six days a week. And then every day in high school, I would swim six days a week. And three of those days would be twice a day. Um, So here it's kind of in between club and like recreational swimming. So we only swim four to five days a week and it's only for an hour and a half still at five 30 in the morning as all some practices are. Um, But so it's a little more low key. And so I think the biggest adjustment for me was going from what I learned growing up swimming so intensively and then being a division one athlete to resetting my expectations for these kids, knowing that, you know, this is just kind of a hobby for some of them. Like not all of them want to swim in college. In fact, most of them don't. It's just something to keep them in shape and something they enjoy doing. Um, So I was probably a little hard on them at first, um, but we've come to terms now and found a happy medium um and yeah it's just been really fun coaching them and I really enjoy it because I can apply what I learned in the pool and also what I've learned working in physical therapy in order to make nice well-rounded non-injured athletes um so it's been fun to kind of see what I hope will be my career to apply it to the swimming um has been fun and challenging and um keeps me working my brain so I don't get too bored while we're here one of the nice things about living overseas, seeing German culture, making friends over there, at least as well as you can with the language barrier and, and meeting people from all over America, since you're still interacting a lot with Americans or traveling to a bunch of other European countries, is that you get to not only learn about their culture and their perspectives, but also hear what do they think of my country and hear what's going on in America. So when you Um, are watching from afar, you know, of America and seeing, oh gosh, I mean, what's going on first with the coronavirus and now with protests. And it sounds like you had participated in one yourself. What has that been like to both watch American news and see stuff going on and not be able to participate in the same way, but in your own way, take me through how that's gone for you in Germany. Um, Well, coronavirus has been drastically different here in Europe than uh, what it is in the United States. Um, I know Italy was hit very hard and we've been talking to the coaches that we have in Italy and seeing how they're doing. But here in Germany, our numbers were pretty high in the beginning, but people here 
tend to believe in science and will listen to what their leaders are telling them. And so people are really, really good about wearing masks and social distancing. And because of that, um, I believe our data last week was that in the past 10 days, the state in Germany that we live in only had 10 new cases. And um, I mean, it's not a small state. It's our city is the same size as Portland. So to have those kind of numbers and see that compared to the US where they're just now starting to go back to opening things up and things are going back to quote unquote normal and their numbers are just skyrocketing back up and seeing that that's just due to people not taking the proper precautions when they're going outside. It's really sad and difficult to see that from over here and just to know how much of a political divide there is in the United States and kind of, that's kind of what I personally blame it on. The reason why people are not doing that is just because America is so politically divided that apparently wearing a mask is making a statement. And I just think that that's really sad. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few months, but right now I'm not very hopeful. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement happening um, a little bit more than usual right now, um, it's been interesting to see from over here. Um, I've been excited because it seems like social media has been a pretty powerful thing, so I don't feel too helpless living over here um but it was super tough to see all the protests happening and how how much that was changing especially in portland where we were living it seems like there's been protests nearly every day um, since george floyd was killed so we were kind of feeling helpless over here and then we were looking up the laws and seeing that people living overseas representing the united states were not allowed to protest legally And so me and our group of friends were completely devastated that we couldn't show our support for our country and for what we believed in while we're living over here. But then the Europe commander, so the person in charge of all of the bases in Europe, released a letter saying that it was okay for us to protest. So we went to one in Stuttgart and it was wonderful. And I'm so glad we got to go. And um, Baden-Württemberg, the state that we live in, is pretty conservative. Um, It's more of an elderly population. So to see such a huge group of people show up and show their support in Germany for the United States was really, really incredible to be a part of. Um, And it was super powerful. And I know that protests have been happening in most major cities in Germany. So it's been just really exciting to see how much people around the world, um, and especially in Germany, given the past that has happened here to see that they support the progressiveness that we are hoping that the United States can go towards in a better future for uh, Black Americans. The law you mentioned, I'm guessing that wasn't a German law that's for army base individuals who can't protest their own country while they're stationed or living on a base in a different country, right? Correct. Yeah, it's, it's for people that are living abroad that are also representing the military in some way. Interesting. Okay, so you normally couldn't, but they gave you sort of an exception, which says a lot in of itself. Like normally we don't want you protesting, but hey, this time it's okay. So that's a a pretty big deal. And then that protest, was that 
still organized by just German citizens and you joined, or was it actually organized by people with the, the military base uh, there in Stuttgart? The protest was organized by German citizens. The flyer and everything was in German. Um, and there were performers on a stage and, you know, people with megaphones and everything, and they were all, all German. Um, but I know that a bunch of the Americans here went to it. But yeah, it, it was a German protest. It was not anything affiliated with base. I don't think we're allowed to do that either. I don't yeah. think we would be allowed to be the organizers. I think we are just allowed to attend. I'm guessing it would be hard to have any long conversations with a lot of Germans unless they spoke fluent English, but to see them take up an issue that's not in their country, at least not directly coming from Germany, although you could, I mean, to a certain degree, the issue relates to every people group and every race, but it, it exploded out of America, at least in, in its origin, these protests in particular. So to see them take that and run with it, protesting like Americans, even though that's not their country, right? Yeah, um, I can't say I'm too surprised by it. Um, and I think a lot of that is just, specifically in Germany, I think that's due to the way that they approach dealing with issues in politics um, and with human rights, especially. So the way that I perceive it from having conversations with a few Germans is they approach the way that they educate their youth on their troubled history to me seems very different than the way that we do it in the United States. So here, um, especially in Baden-Württemberg, because we are only two hours away from Dachau concentration camp, most of the high schools are required to go there as a field trip in order to use it as kind of a sombering learning experience so that they don't repeat history. And it's kind of, you know, thrown in their faces. Like, this is how terrible it was. You need to see firsthand how awful this was for these people so it doesn't happen. Versus in the United States growing up, we just read history books. I don't remember ever experiencing something firsthand. And that could just be because I lived on the West Coast, but I was never taken to a cotton field where I could see where slavery occurred. That was never shown to us in like a first person setting. It was just read about this, here's a test. And so I think that because the education is so different, they can kind of handle it a lot better and learn from their mistakes a lot better over here. Sure. Yeah. No, I appreciate you saying that. And that I, I should have even thought to ask about that because you've got a country where you're living in, where they've got their own history of a very big event. And you know, how, do, how do you approach teaching kids who have to grow up and realize, wait a minute, only a few decades ago, our country did what exactly? And then how do they go about that? And, and I think you explained it really well. That was one of the things I talked with Erica Nassar about, who's on the volleyball team. I think she kind of overlapped a few years. as a Yeah, I know, Erica. Yeah. Um, was just yeah the the education piece and if and kind of the thing I shared was gosh if there's anything that I've learned from the last few weeks and seeing the protests is I've never thought that I understood what it was like to to live in Corvallis as an African American I didn't I didn't think I knew that but it's taught me no I really don't know that I really I there's a lot I need to just listen and and just kind of be educated more and if anything that's what increases the need for as you were talking about 
something bigger than history textbooks because if you don't understand the best thing to do is to get educated and not to bash any particular educational system i mean it's hard to really help especially kids know what the history is but like you were saying it's super key because how else am i going to understand as well as possible I and mean, that's a big starting point so i think you bring an interesting perspective being in germany and i, I appreciate um I appreciate you sharing that and having that experience of seeing it kind of from both sides. Um, so let's kind of put a bow tie on it. And last question is just kind of look back at um, stuff you've learned in Germany, the stuff we've talked about, what you've seen, the coaching, your experiences at Oregon State is kind of the last question I often ask is, uh, what advice would you give yourself when you were first uh, a true freshman at Oregon State? Gosh, eight years ago now, 2012. So when you were stepping on campus in Corvallis, coming over from Nevada, what's something that you've learned since then that you might share with yourself from back then? Wow. Um, I would say there's so many things I could say to myself <laughs> when I was a freshman. I would say I would tell myself to study harder. Um, your grades are going to matter and swimming is important and it's important to give it your all, but it's not everything. And there's so much more out there than just being really good at your sport. That's good. That's really good. That's what I like to talk about is how, you know, big of a role athletics plays in people's lives and, and sports are great, but they are, they are temporary and they can't, they can't mean everything. So it sounds like yeah. you've learned that and still play a role in sports because now you're coaching. So obviously it's still a good thing, but in it, in its own place. Yeah. So um, anyways, thanks so much for talking with me, Sammy. It's been really fun to, to hear your perspective and looking forward to having people hear this episode of the podcast. So thanks for chatting with me. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Really fun conversation with Sammy Harrison here in this episode. I like getting swimmers on this podcast, even though it's not a sport that Oregon State sponsors now. It has been up until recently, and there's a lot of really talented athletes over the years. I hope to talk with Naya or Sauri or um, any of these other swimmers that have gone through the program. It's fun to connect with athletes from the swimming program in particular. My mom used to be the head coach of the swimming team back in the 80s, and so it's cool to see a lot of the swimmers who well, went through the club ranks like I did, but then were actually competitive and competent at it and went on to the collegiate level. And uh, to see what they've done since then is really fun, regardless of whether that stayed in swimming or went far beyond that. And so I hope you enjoyed that conversation as well with Sammy Harrison. And conversations, like I said, with Felicia Anderson or some of the earlier episodes, if you haven't heard those, there's some good episodes and they're still pretty relevant just because they may be a few weeks old. They're kind of touching on broad life topics. It's not just, you know, what's going on this week all the time. So I would encourage you, if you like some of these episodes, go check out the earlier ones. They, I could release them at any point. I mean, it doesn't matter how old they are. Felicia was really, in particular, an interesting story. She had qualified for Olympic trials, but then it was pushed back for a year. So then she had an issue of, well, I've already graduated from college. So do I put my life kind of on hold and train for a whole year for Olympic trials next year? Or do I just retire and not have to disrupt my entire life when I thought I could just go right out of college, go into Olympic trials and then retire from swimming where it kind of worked out well? So what was her life decision? Well, you can go check out the podcast with Felicia a few weeks ago and see uh, that decision among many other topics and any of the other episodes. Hope you like those as well. Thanks for tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. It's really fun to chat with 
these athletes and people to hear what they've done since Oregon State. And it's really powerful and meaningful to see how many people are listening as well. Try to spread the word on this podcast. So if you can share this with a friend, text somebody about it, and uh, share this with anyone who might enjoy these types of conversations, that would be greatly appreciated on my end. A lot more conversations to come. All right, until next time, everybody, I'm Josh Warden on the Beaver Tales podcast. Good night and go Beavs.